Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our next speaker, Dr. John Grabowski, is Ordinary Professor of Moral Theology at Catholic University of America, on whose faculty he has, he has served since 1991. He served two terms as a theological advisor to the United States um, Catholic Bishops Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, and Youth, and was appointed by Pope Francis in 2015, I think, to serve as an expert at the Synod of Bishops of the, on the Family. Um, he has a wonderful growing family himself, and he's been a wonderful colleague as well. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Grabowski. Thank you, Joe. As um, Dr. Capizzi mentioned, um, I've been at my day job for a little while. Um, when, I hear th when I hear that date, 1991, a little voice in my head says, that makes you sound really old. But then I have other voices in my head, those of my adult children, who will say helpful things like, Dad, you are really old. It's one of the benefits of being a father, right? You, you have children who help you acquire that most important but always elusive virtue of humility. Um, so I'm grateful to His Eminence, Cardinal Ouellette, um, the Centre de Recherche d'Anthropologie et d'Evocations, the Institute for Human Ecology, uh, Theological College, and the Thomistic Institute for the invitation to be here. And I'm grateful to you all for, for being present. About five years ago, I was teaching an adult education course on the theology of the body in another part of the United States. Um, during a break in one of those sessions, um, I was chatting with a couple of um, female Catholic college students from a small Catholic university that is very public about advertising its commitment to its Catholic identity. During one of the breaks, um, they informed me that at their school they had been taught that they could not be said to have a vocation until they entered either religious life or marriage. I was taken aback. I told them to go back to their self-identified uber-Catholic college and tell their professors to stop teaching them error. Because the church very clearly teaches that every baptized Christian has a vocation, a vocation given to them in baptism, um, the vocation to holiness. Lumen Gentium 40 affirms Quote, all the faithful of Christ, whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and the perfection of charity. But beyond that rather glaring theological miss, those comments revealed a number of kind of enduring theological problems that impact the, the catechesis and the lives of ordinary Catholics that I've seen many times over the years. The lack of clarity about the concept of vocation, the conflation of vocation with state of life, a failure to understand the distinct states of life and their gifts and complementary nature, and the invisibility of single lay Catholics within the church. Now, these brief reflections are, cannot address, let alone resolve, that whole Gordian knot of issues. 
I've been asked to say something about vocational culture and the complementarity of states of life. Um, in doing so, I hope to offer some partial thoughts aimed at clarifying the concepts of vocation and state in life, and consider a few ways in which the various states in life within the church can be said to be complementary, um, complementary to one another in the life and mission of the church. The term vocation, of course, comes from the Latin vocare, to call. Beginning from the Council's teaching, we can affirm that the basic vocation of every Christian is holiness, to bear fruit in charity for the life of the world, in the words of Optatum Totius. Note that that teaching is not new, but a recovery and affirmation of a basic horizon of New Testament teaching. So the first letter of Peter exhorts, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, live soberly, set your hopes completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like obedient children, do not act in compliance with the desires of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in every aspect of your conduct, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. That exhortation resounds through the apostolic preaching and instruction. In spite of periods of the church's life where that understanding was obscured by poor catechesis and perhaps poor preaching that tended to divide the church into a kind of A-team comprised of clerics and religious and a B-team comprised of the laity, there were always voices in the church reminding the faithful of the basic truth of their call to holiness. Think of John Chrysostom, Francis de Sales, and Thérèse of Lisieux as outstanding examples. But we can also speak of a call to a state in life, a kind of vocation within a vocation. That call does not erase the basic call to holiness, but concretizes and specifies it. The Christian is now called to learn to live out this call to holiness by learning to love a spouse and children, the members of a religious community, or the members of his parish or apostolate. How many states of life are there? Sister Alexandra Diriart, um, in the Rome Symposium, in her paper, observes that even the Council betrays some ambiguity on this point. Lumen Gentium 43 states that the Church has two basic states, clergy and laity, and that religious who are not clerics, consecrated women and religious brothers, should not be viewed as kind of an intermediate state between them. But Lumen Gentium 31 describes the laity by distinguishing them from those in holy orders and religious life. She observes that we can explain this discrepancy in part by noting that Lumen Gentium 43 is considering the church hierarchically, whereas Lumen Gentium 31 is viewing the church in its charismatic dimension, which helps to foreground the distinctiveness of religious life. This, however, does not resolve all the problems. She notes that it tends to erase marriage as a distinctive state within the broader lay state. I would add that it has a similar effect on the state of single adult lay Christians who tend to become even more invisible. They are often imagined to be simply in a kind of vocational limbo, waiting for a call to marriage, religious life, or priesthood, and accounted as a kind of failure if none of those materialize. Given that more lay Christians are spending significant portions of their lives outside of marriage due to later marriage 
longer lifespans, and higher numbers of people who by choice or circumstance remain unmarried. We need more reflection in the way in which this state too can be the arena to live out the baptismal call to holiness through witness, apostolic work, friendship, and Christian commitment. However, even an introductory discussion of that topic would require another symposium, so I'm not going to attempt that here. In what sense can we speak of these various states in life, these calls within calls, uh, of the universal call to holiness as complementary? And what does that mean? Diriart, while not defining complementarity, suggests adding the term reciprocity in order to highlight the co-responsibility of these various states and to make clear that laity and religious are not merely the longa manus of the clergy in the life and mission of the church. The point is a fair one, but if we understand complementarity adequately, the additional qualifier is, in my view, unnecessary. Drawing on church teaching on the complementarity of the sexes and the historical research of Sister Prudence Allen, I would describe the various states in life as complementary in the sense that each has an integral wholeness considered in itself and yet is fundamentally in interdependent in meaning and function such that in their coming together they create a synergy in the life of the church in which the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. In the remainder of these reflections, I want to offer a couple of examples of that complementarity from the standpoint of these varying states as agents of formation or builders of vocational culture. Given my own focus in my teaching and research, it will focus primarily on the family as a particular instantiation of the lay state and through um, its reciprocity with the other states in life, um, clergy and religious as well. In his paper on Christian initiation and forming for specific vocations, also at the Rome Symposium, Father Eduard Ade points to the interconnection between the health of families and vocations to the priesthood and religious life. He cites John Paul II's apostolic exhortation, Ecclesia in Africa, quote, where marriage and the family are in crisis, the vocations to priesthood and the vocation to religious life are also in crisis. Where they are healthy, the other vocations are also holding up. This observation concerning the church in Africa obtains equally around other parts of the globe. Where the family has been most ravaged by the industrial, sexual, and technological revolutions, religious and priestly vocations have waned, and the sexual abuse crisis has hit the hardest. Ade notes that in recent years, many national bishops' conferences have sought to address gaps in the human formation of candidates for priesthood through starting junior seminaries, and religious institutes have sought to do the same through prepostulancies. While such measures might help in the short term, they are not a complete answer in the longer term, to the problem posed by the fragmentation of the family. Addressing the urgent need for more well-formed candidates for the priesthood and religious life requires a renewal of the family. And that renewal requires the engagement of the other states in life, not just through mutual witness, but as agents of formation. 
But before we can think about that, before we can think about ways in which clergy and religious help to form the family, we must acknowledge their fundamental dependence upon it. The family is the first and most important school of formation in a person's life. Augustine notes that the bonum proles is not just the begetting of children, but the task of forming them humanly and in the faith implanted in them through the regenerating waters of baptism. For him and for other fathers such as John Chrysostom, the Christian family is meant to function as an ecclesia domestica in which the faith is both lived and passed on. John Paul II unpacks this patristic insight by referring to the threefold munis conferred through baptism. In Familiaris Consortio 50, he writes, the Christian family also builds up the kingdom of God in history through the everyday realities that concern and distinguish its state in life. It is thus in the love between husband and wife and between the members of the family, a love lived out in all its extraordinary riches of values and demands, totality, oneness, fidelity, and fruitfulness, that the Christian family's participation in the prophetic, priestly, and kingly mission of Jesus Christ and of his church finds expression and realization. The baptismal priesthood of husband and wife enlivened by their nuptial consecration in marriage, which joins them as one flesh, enables them to be the first formators of future priests and religious born to them, as well as a seedbed for future vibrant Christian marriages. In this work of human and Christian formation, both men and women make irreplaceable contributions. Pope Francis states in Amoris Laetitia, every child has the right to receive love from a mother and father. Both are necessary for a child's integral and harmonious development. Each of the spouses contributes in a distinct way to the upbringing of a child. Respecting a child's dignity means affirming his or her need and natural right to have a mother and a father. Husband and wife, father and mother, both cooperate with the love of God the Creator and are, in a certain sense, His interpreters. They show their children the maternal and paternal face of the Lord. Yet the contributions of men and women are also distinct. From the love and care provided by their mother, to whom their lives are entrusted even within the womb, children derive much of their security. John Paul II notes that men are outside the bonds formed by their spouses and their children during pregnancy, childbirth, and infancy. And in some sense, men have to learn their fatherhood from their wives. But fathers, too, make irreplaceable contributions. This certainly includes, as Pope Francis notes, helping children discover the limits of life, the challenges of the wider world, and the value of work. But beyond this, Fathers have a unique role in teaching and handing on the faith. Both the Old and New Testaments use the term father and teacher interchangeably in different contexts. Ancient Israel actually developed specific rituals to habituate men to this teaching role. St. Augustine compared the teaching role of the father in the Christian family to that of the bishop in his local church. Even modern social scientific studies highlight the unique contribution made by men passing on the faith to their children. One study found that, to summarize, that if a, a father attends church with his children, 
irrespective of the religious observance of the mother or the family, those children are 10 times more likely to attend church as adults. There's something powerful about the witness of a father practicing the faith. These unique contributions to the human and Christian formation of their children lay the foundation for the growth and exercise of spiritual motherhood and fatherhood by the future religious or priest. Conversely, consecrated persons, both active and contemplative, and clergy have a key role to play in the ongoing formation of Christian families in order to fulfill their mission as domestic churches, both within their own life and in their odd extra mission to the world. It is for this reason that Pope Francis calls for better formation of those who have or will have this formative role, seminarians, priests, consecrated religious, and those who collaborate with them in the ministry of catechesis. They are the key formators of the family through sacramental ministry, preaching, pastoral accompaniment, teaching, and witness. The goal of this improved formation is to empower families to be who they are um, as the nearest hospital for their members, to use Pope Francis's phrase from Amoris Laetitia, and those who encounter them through their lived prayer, service, and witness. However, that mission of the family does not stop at the walls of their own home. As Father Ade notes, healthy vocational culture in the church always has a missionary orientation. Hence, the deeper formation of families for which Amoris Laetitia calls is to enable them to serve as, quote, the principal agents of the family apostolate, unquote, in their ministry to other families and other persons. Ministry to families must be undertaken in a missionary key so that families themselves can fulfill their own call to mission. To conclude, the various states of life in the church are indeed complementary expressions of the basic baptismal vocation to holiness of every Christian and the task of evangelization for which the church exists. These brief remarks have offered just a few examples of that dynamic reality. One of the fruits of the Council's recovery of the apostolic insistence on the universal call to holiness is the growing awareness over the last four major pontificates of the responsibility of every Christian to be a missionary disciple, actively engaged in the work of evangelization. Certainly, this is one of the things that is new in the new evangelization, the complementary roles of all Christians in all states of life in carrying it out. Having met the one who has, in the words of Pope Benedict XVI, given their lives a definitive direction, the disciple, whether lay, cleric, or religious, seeks to invite others to that life-changing encounter. And that witness is most powerful and most fruitful when given together. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, we, have quest we have time for questions again. I see a hand over here. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Grabowski. I'm Monsignor uh, Andrew Baker from Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Um, you so rightly pointed out that uh, parents are the first seminary formators. If you were to advise parents today, what would be maybe your top three 
things or virtues that would most help a young man in his development um, to say yes to a vocation to the priesthood? I guess before, that's a great question, so thank you. Um, before I would think about or recommend specific virtues, I think I would point to specific practices, right? Um, because practices are the, where that's what forms the virtue, forms us in the virtues, regular. So families need regular practices. And obviously one of the keys there is prayer, developing a, a a life of family prayer from which children can begin to develop their own lives of prayer and the habit of not just speaking to the Lord, but listening. And parents can both model and teach their children how to do that, how to engage in meditative prayer, going to the Lord, listening for the Lord's voice in Scripture and in, um, in the liturgy, in all the opportunities that we have. So... Um, developing a regular life of prayer, developing a, habits of family service, right? Where children learn that it's not all about them, right? And it's about serving one another, serving their families. And again, hopefully parents are not just preaching, but leading by example in this regard, right? Um, so I, I guess I would, I would encourage families to think about those habits. And then perhaps more practical, but um, not, not to be overlooked. Um, I think part of the life of a family should be the, uh, and part of that modeling of what Christian service looks like is hospitality, inviting others into the home. And I think it's very important for families to invite clergy and religious into their homes so that their children can meet and, and encounter others who've heard the Lord's call to priesthood and religious life. And that, I think, helps n nourish the idea that perhaps the Lord has the same call for them. So some, some thoughts about, about practices, but thank you. Great question. Back there. Father Chris Coffey, I'm the pastor of St. Benedict's in Ridgely, Maryland, and St. Elizabeth's in Denton, Maryland. And Doctor, I loved what you spoke about the different vocations and how it seems that if one is lacking, it really affects all of the other ones. And um, looking back at my past 10 years of priesthood, uh, I can honestly say that early on, I kind of realized this when I was sitting at a diocesan dinner and someone from the diocese was up there and they were talking um, about all the different accomplishments our diocese made over the year. And they were saying, we've raised this much money, we've had this many baptisms, we've had this many funerals. And then they said, we've had, I think it was less than 250 weddings this year in the whole diocese. And so that was shocking to me and it was a wake up call, but it also made me think about my own priesthood in 10 years. I mean, I've been in parishes that are huge mega parishes that have three, 4,000 families, and I've performed less than 25 weddings in my 10 years of priesthood. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, you know, that is really a showing and a telltale sign of why we do have a lack of priestly and religious vocations, because we're just not getting these families with young children. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the great things is really starting young adult groups, because it allows Catholic young adults to meet. And, um, you know, they always kind of like joke with me, and they're like, Father, did you set this up to be like a dating thing for us? And I'm like, no, I didn't set it up to be a dating thing, but... I mean, in reality, it is a safe place for them to meet and find their future spouse. But what are some 
um, fundamental kind of concepts that you would maybe think that would be good for the parish to get these young families and young adults involved? Ooh, um, great question. Um, just so your, your last point there, I, I guess all of you who are ordained, um, somewhere in your job description is yenta-ing, right? Um, because you have to have certain undercover matchmaking skills um, at your disposal. So that, that, that's fair. But um, I think, yeah, I, giving people the opportunity um, to meet, I think it's, it's if we're trying to build a culture that affirms all of these states in life as realizations of our basic baptismal vocation to holiness, um, starting with just, the, I think there's definitely a fear of marriage out there in the culture, and that's one reason why the, the, the delay of marriage or just some couples eschewing marriage, fear of its expense, fear of its fragility, maybe coming from families that have been wounded by divorce. Parishes, I think, can do certain things to kind of foreground the, the importance of listening for the Lord's call, whether that call is to marrying, whether that call is to religious life, whether that call is to priesthood. Um, in terms of marriage and building a, a culture that is um, trying to affirm the good of marriage in a culture that is increasingly fearful of it, um, little things like celebrating couples who have been married for long periods of time, right? Like couples celebrating a 40th or a 50th wedding anniversary. Those, need, those should be celebrated and acknowledged within the parish. Praying for engaged couples. You know, when couples are engaged and they're not, to, to ask the whole parish community to pray for them. But then, so in, encouraging marriage, but then giving those young families a place to go for ongoing formation, right? And especially because it's so easy as children come for parents to get swallowed up by the demands of raising kids in ordinary life, giving them a place. Young adult groups are great, but what about young families groups? What about you know, providing babysitting opportunities so other young couples can get together and younger couples can mix and mingle with older couples from the parish who can serve as mentor couples from them, especially if they don't have good models of a healthy, strong Christian marriage in their family backgrounds. So by focusing on marriage and promoting the, the, the vocation to marriage, I think we're actually going to be also promoting vocations to priesthood and religious life because they, they, they go together. We have time for one more question right here. Thanks, Dr. Grabowski. Um, my question has to do with the, what is sometimes called the single the single vocation as distinct from the baptismal vocation. There's been a lot of talk about this, obviously. And um, on the one hand, like you pointed out, you know, it's really important that people who end up not becoming married or priest or religious not feel that they have somehow failed or missed the boat or, you know, are no longer able to fulfill their lives. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. On the other hand, if we somehow distinguish it from baptism itself, that is to say, what is different from saying I am called to single life and right. I am baptized and right. called to be a saint, um, then it's, it, first of all, there's nothing in our tradition about that, you know, of some kind of distinct vocation, you know, 
Um, there's a concern that, I mean, people do get married later, they enter mm -hmm. seminary later, they enter mm -hmm. religious life later, so there's a concern as if too early I say, well, I am now singing, I have, this is my vocation, well, actually, they won't hear the call when they're, right. when they're called. And, and I think that the whole question of, um, there is a kind of an objective, I think, uh, uh, there, there's something great, objectively greater about one of these vocations that has been designated by God through the church to produce life, right? And married life, priesthood, religious life, to be, you know, commissioned by the church to, to bring life to others, right? And, 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 and so, obviously, that's not subjectively better if somebody's not called to one of those further specifications of their baptismal vocation. What's always subjectively better is to do what God calls us to do. So I guess that's, that's you know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. You pointed out a really important thing to be aware of, but at the same time, there's another side to this, and it can confuse people. You know, you walk in, what do you, you know, I'm called to be a single. Uh, and that's, that's a challenge. I think there's some issues that need to be sort of teased out in that. Right. No, I, that is a wonderful point, Father Carter. Thank you. Um, and I think it's a, it's a delicate balancing act because we want to affirm theologically that in God's providence, there's no such thing as a failed life as someone who, as you said, missed the bus um, as a Christian, right? Because God can, um, God can and does work through a person in any, in any state of life, including someone who is sing single but open to being called to one of those. And I, and I do think, I, I deliberately did not use the language of a vocation to single life, because I, I think that's something we really need to think about. What separates someone who is single and hence in principle open to a further call to religious life, priesthood, marriage, is they have not committed themselves in the form of a definitive self-gift, as in one of those other states. So that's a difference, and we need to acknowledge that and recognize that. But does that mean that they are incapable of self-giving as Christians and living out their call to holiness through friendship, community, um, being active in an apostolate? Well, no, certainly not. So we're trying to we're trying to balance goods here, and but I, I do think that this requires both theological attentiveness and pastoral attentiveness to. Think, we need to think through this issue more fully, but we need to not make those people invisible or an afterthought in the way we think about the life of the church. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.